the bureaucratification of people. Oh, I know what an elf is. I know what an orc is. Through like the lens of the Frankfurt School. What's gonna happen here? Welcome to Literary Connections. We're friends who started a podcast because we live on opposite sides of the world and we're using books to stay connected. Of course, sometimes those books bring us back to the same locale. I'm Melissa, currently eating carbonara in the Cerulean Sea. <laughs> and I'm James Earl, trying to be aware of both the paper and the story inscribed on it in Milan, Italy. Oh, so deep, so deep. Yeah, this uh, is exciting. This, this is, exciting. is a couple of firsts for us. One, it's the first time that we're going to be recording this podcast in person together, both at the same time. Mm-hmm. And I think it's the first time that we both read a book and unequivocally both enjoyed it without yeah. without reservation. Yeah, I mean, congratulations, TJ Clune, author of The House in the Cerulean Sea. You really knocked this one out of the park. Of course, we'll have to talk about his inspiration being a little less um, pleasant as the happily ever after of his book. But yeah, this was a winner. Yeah, I purposefully didn't do much of the research on the inspiration. I know sort of briefly that it was about the schools in Canada. I'm looking forward to hearing what kind of research you did. But first, Mm -hmm. the summary. Yes, please. All right, so we start with Linus Baker, a man trapped in a system and a job that constrains him and isolates him from other people. And he gets called into extremely upper management where he gets put on a job that is classified level four. And it takes him to an island in the Cerulean Sea where he meets a man named Arthur Parnassus and six quote, orphans um, who each have special abilities, and he, in the process, spoiler alert, do not keep on listening if you don't want spoilers, in the process of meeting these children and Arthur Parnassus, he learns to feel responsible for other people in a meaningful way again, he forms friendships where people take responsibility for him, And in the end, he advocates for this island and uh, returns to it to live happily ever after. Yeah, in love. In love with Arthur Parnassus. Yes. And the children, but in a different kind of way. Yeah. But there are also makeouts. Yeah. (laughs) Okay, so where do we want to start? Where do we want to start? Let's start at the status quo. Linus's status quo. (laughs) Sounds good. The way I read it is through like the lens of the Frankfurt School and critical theory where he is trapped in this job in this like world where everything has conspired against him to isolate him from any sort of meaningful community. He doesn't have friends, he doesn't have family, his neighbors are all pretty crappy to each other and nobody looks out for anybody else. They all sort of assume ill intention or have selfish behaviors. This is also true of his work and so being detached from any sort of meaningful community or any sort of like responsible situation, he has become like reinterpreted by the system as only an employee. So like everything about his day is structured around work. He tries to take a vacation, they call him in anyway. His whole day is structured, he has to have every minute accounted for and it's like 15 minutes of lunch. And so he's just a bureaucrat. Yeah, and I think he's such a bureaucrat that he has his own copy of the rules and regulations that are written by um, the department in charge of magical youth. And he like spouts them off, completely memorized all the time. And I think what's really interesting to me about that is obviously part of this is Linus learns to like break the rules and find his own truth. But part of it is also 
rules and regulations are completely man-made. Yeah. They're like completely arbitrary. Like even in the scene where he meets extremely upper management and he's, he's quoting the rules and regulations, which he has memorized. One of the guys like, Oh, well, what are you talking about? And one guy is like, you wrote these, you should know (laughs) what these things are that he's quoting. And you realize how these completely detached people have written these rules that don't actually apply to like helping the world live their best lives and be a kind of place where magical creatures and humans can live together. Right. And so his identity is fully, like he basically transfers responsibility for having his own identity onto these rules and regulations. And he just follows that. He follows the schedule given to him. He follows the rules and regulations and has them memorized, as you said, and sort of outsources his morality and outsources his sense of identity Mm -hmm. to this system. Which I, I hadn't actually thought this through, but he does have one connection to, like, not himself, which is his cat, Calliope. Oh, yeah. And I didn't put this together, but the reason, the first time he meets Talia, um, who's the gnome, who is amazing, um, one of the six children, it's because Calliope runs away from him. Yeah. And, like, brings him into the not status quo, into this next sense of That's adventure. That's interesting. I love the idea of, of the cat being the the vehicle through which he crosses the threshold (laughs) and goes from his little internal world of, you know, outsourced identity into a world of meaningful connection through this, like, one bright spot that is his cat. Cats are basically wyverns, only they have less nice abodes where they keep all of their treasures. I had never heard of a wyvern before. I had not either. Okay, cool. Because I feel I know what a gnome is. Like, I, I have access to all of these other things. But the wyvern was a totally new... I had to look it up. Yeah. Well, I think what that's what's really great about it is they're all something that's almost known but partially unknown. Like, I just do not know what Chauncey is. Is Chauncey just the guy from Monsters, Inc.? <laughs> like, I have a lot of open questions. Yeah, obviously, I think this is on purpose because I think you're right. Like, we all come into a gnome, the concept of a gnome, thinking that we might know what it is, but, like, not really knowing what it is. Like, for me, it's David the gnome the Mm. character from some, like, cartoon when I was younger. Yeah, and I feel like when I think of gnomes, I think of, like, Travelocity commercials. Right. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, so, right, we have associations that we inscribe onto them, but we don't actually, we don't, like, let them be their own thing or, like, look for evidence for what a gnome actually is. Mm -hmm. Which is why I think it's really good to bring all these disparate creatures together because you have to look parts of them up. I feel like sometimes when you go into fantasy, it's like, oh, I know what an elf is. I know what an orc is. Like you already Mm -hmm. have these other things that are writing onto it, but because we don't know what some of these are and we've never seen them in this combination before, it allows you to sort of suspend those preconceptions. Yeah, exactly. And and obviously this is all oriented towards that theme of we inscribe meaning, like the the facts of something exist, right? Like these people uh, and beings exist in this world, but the language that we use to talk about them is constructed and like calling attention to the way that we construct meaning and inscribe that meaning onto these physical bodies of the gnome and the the green blob that is Chauncey and so on is obviously really thematic in how it's explored. Totally. So what does it mean that there's an antichrist and it's a child? I've been thinking a lot about this because uh, like, we're asked to uh, accept the premise that this is the Antichrist. Mm-hmm. So, <laughs> so how, do we, how do we go from there and like, figure out what this is an allegory for? Well, also, I think that there's something interesting of like, 
is there only one antichrist right. <laughs> was the question that like is this actually a breed of creature that's like actually out in the world and is this our first time encountering it yeah um or is this literally like the person who's going to bring to, about the apocalypse yeah yeah because i think that was like one thing that i was really confused about which if you're worried that this is the antichrist not saying obviously like you should do anything bad to children mm-hmm. But clearly, extremely upper management was like more worried about Arthur Parnassus and yeah. his undue influence onto these children than actually what Lucy, Lucifer, the Antichrist right. could potentially wreak havoc upon the world. Yeah. And Arthur and Lucy have this in common, right? Like mm-hmm. Arthur is, spoiler alert, a phoenix. And so, you know, phoenixes, if they burn bright enough, will destroy the world so that something else can be reborn out of it. You know, Lucy's the Antichrist who is there to, as he says over and over again in the book, bring about the end of the world. So, like, this is a real palpable danger that we sort of have to accept the premise of that within the logic of the book. So it sort of resists some interpretations that I was finding, but the more I thought about it, the more maybe not. I could see Lucy as something like post-traumatic stress disorder, where he has bad dreams. Those bad dreams often result in him like waking up and like causing danger to people. I, I read about this in the book Unbroken, where the protagonist of Unbroken wakes up because of post-traumatic stress disorder and finds himself being abusive to his spouse, unaware. And so this idea of like bad dreams and being capable, you know, being a soldier or whatever, being capable of doing damage, but having this like anxiety and stress that has been imposed upon you that are causes for that violence. And we're all, at the end of the day, capable of extraordinary violence these days with the weapons that are available and that have been invented. Like, all of us can cause lots of damage. And so this is an actual real thing. Like, maybe not cause the end of the world, but we could, in fact, end the world for a good portion of people if we decided to, like, turn towards the dark side. I think it's very interesting because I think this is what I felt was missing a little bit. I think the relationship between magical creatures and humans throughout the book was hard for me to parse. It sounded like all of the kids who were there were orphans, or at least were thought to be orphans. And then once they became adults, they were being managed by the department in charge of magical adults. And I didn't have a good grasp on what that looked like. And so, so much of the book seemed to be about these magical creatures learning to control themselves, to be more presentable to humans, which is like, obviously like a bit of a problem, especially with like a human coming in very white savior-y to Mm -hmm. like save them all. Mm -hmm. Obviously like humans are also shown to be like prejudiced and awful when you look at the town. But I don't think that we ever touched the narrative of the author's inspiration. The relocations of the first nations in Canada is humans are capable of terrible, terrible, terrible things that are worse than what Lucy can do. Right. That's a really good point. Right. Like we focus on the damage that Lucy can do, but there's also the damage that we can do unto Lucy and these other kids. That this is a real historical problem that humans have. Yeah. And the way to avoid it is not to use the term, but like humanity is empathy is the sense of community that they've been able to create when at the end where Linus is like, it's not an orphanage, it's a home. Yeah. Like that. And like, finding the relationship with the town that becomes now a haven for magical creatures to like go on vacation and Linus again going from his status quo of being completely isolated other than his adorable cat to becoming part of the larger community right where he shows up somewhere and people say we missed you which doesn't happen to him at work Mm -hmm. another solution I saw that this book offers to this problem is 
just allowing people who are part of the marginalized community to be part of the conversation around how that marginalized community is thought of within a legal system, political system, cultural system. So you've got this, as, as you mentioned, this like sort of Foucaultian surveillance culture where they're meant to be responsible for each other and survey each other and keep each other in check. This is also brought up explicitly in one scene in the book where they ask about, like, within the rules and regulations, how many magical beings were actually a part of that conversation? And the answer was zero. It was only humans. Mm -hmm. And so this idea of of power structures that don't allow for the voice of a marginalized community to have a seat at the table when discussing the way that the political system or the cultural system that, that they're a part of. Yeah, and the resistance of extremely upper management, too. This is, like, the first time that a magical being in Arthur is taking charge is right. is in a position of power right. um, and is leading his own. And it, the whole fear of it felt very like X-Men to me. Like what is Professor Xavier doing in that school of his Yeah, and creating rules and regulations that in fact threaten magical mm-hmm. beings, which then causes them to retaliate. And I think there's a line in it, like the things that we fear the most are the things that we should fear the least, mm-hmm. which I really, really liked as a line. Um, and I think that that was like, a really good emblem of fear begets more fear. Yeah. All right. So we've talked a little bit about what Lucy could uh, represent. How about Chauncey, the most adorable of all of all creatures? Um, Other than my heart. <laughs> yeah. Uh, just quickly before we talk about Chauncey, I just want to quote from some lines that I think stole everybody's heart. So there, it's one of those scenes where they're going on one of their little quests together, and Chauncey says, maybe we could all be villains. And Talia responds, like, you don't even know how to be bad. You're too nice. And he says, and I'll quote here, no, I can be bad. Watch. His eyes pivoted wildly until they landed on Linus. Mr. Baker, I won't do your laundry next week. Ha ha ha. Then, then in a panicky voice, he whispered, I'm just kidding. Please, please don't take this away from me. <laughs> Chauncey can do my laundry any day he wants. Yeah. Yeah. So Chauncey is a green blob that nobody really knows what he is or where he came from, but everybody believes him to be a monster and has told him he's a monster because he's an unknown and all he really wants to do in this world is become the best bellhop possible. And he's adorable and everybody loves him. Yeah. And I really thought about like the whole bellhop as a career choice and like what that represents. So much of it is like obviously like the antithesis of being a monster. Monsters exist to scare you and to put you in a place of discomfort and powerlessness. Mm-hmm. Versus a bellhop is someone literally at your service to yeah. help you. And there is this question of where do you find meaning in this book? And as we talked about Linus finding it in the sense of found family and Chauncey finding it in a job well done in learning about how to help people. Yeah. And that's like the opposite of being a monster. He's so good. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And now he idolizes bellhops and like thinks they're the coolest. And that one gives him his hat and he's oh so excited God. about it. So cute. I know. Yeah, Chauncey's responsible for, I think, all the times I almost teared up with this book. I just, they're all so adorable. And then Sal, the were Pomeranian. Oh, yeah. What a, what a precious. 
I mean, you quoted his poem, his beautiful poem. Yeah, yeah. No, I keep on referencing it because I think it is like a central metaphor of the whole story is this idea that we inscribe meaning onto physical objects and like those things do exist. Like the physical objects of the, the physical people and their, you know, embodied existence, they exist. The stories that we use to talk about them, those we construct and those that we have control over, but oftentimes they exist before the physical person embodying that thing, like Chauncey, has not been a part of the discourse for how he is defined. It's only defined external to him and then is, is, is like a coercive force on his existence. Mm-hmm. And so the Ware Pomeranian, like, obviously lives this. Sal is his name. The idea that he's like constantly trying to acknowledge the fact that these stories are told about him, but that he hasn't been a part of the telling of these stories. And so him as a piece of paper exists. The story written on it, he hasn't been able to craft. It's been crafted for him, and it exists. I think Judith Butler would call this pre-discursively. Yeah, and I love that it's been happening to him, and I do find that turning point with Linus to be when he helps Sal move his like desk and typewriter out of the closet, which yeah. obviously is a very like, yeah. <laughs> overt <laughs> right, right. metaphor there. I get it. But there is something um, going from I am but paper to... I am now writing upon paper myself in the open. Yeah. I mean, a lot of this is queer coded. Mm -hmm. I I mean, mean, and overtly in some cases when like dudes are just making out. Yeah. yeah. And I think that, you know, Chauncey's ambiguous being is, is coded as queer in some ways as just like gender fluid. And it's not really clear, you know, what kind of embodied existence he's supposed to be living. I think this is where I have been struggling with a book because I do think that there are, to a certain extent, plot holes in this world mm-hmm. or things that are not fully explained when it comes to like the world of magical beings and humans and how easily Linus was able to like be like, yeah, okay, the orphanage will stay, <laughs> stay yeah. in existence. Like, happy ending, everybody. But also uh, in the author's bio at the end, he talked a lot about like in being queer, how important it is to have just unambiguously happy, positive, queer stories that are queer throughout. And I think what this book succeeds in and is doing that without any sense of like heavy handedness. There's a lightness and like a sense of peace and belonging and authenticity that each of the characters have by themselves and each other that really makes this like a wonderful experience in reading that I think would have been hurt by additional heaviness. Uh, yeah, I agree. And there's something about it just like leveraging joy and being lighthearted and just being a heartwarming book that opens it up to, you know, people want to be around things that make them feel like this book makes you feel. And mm-hmm. by extension, you want to reach out to people who are parts of communities where stories are told about them that they don't have a, a hand in telling themselves and like give them a hug. And so I think this book does a really good job of leveraging that joy and leveraging that that just like compassion that that the whole story includes to that end about having these these joyful stories of queer identity and existence. I've been thinking a lot about how um, TJ Clunas shared his inspiration being like he wanted to write a queer coded magical happy story um, for kids and that one of the things that helped him crystallize the plot of it was looking into the 60s scoop which was um, a movement in Canada that would take children away from their parents, First Nations uh, children away from their parents, and put them into these homes, in this book, orphanages, 
and that many of them were horribly beaten and mistreated, similar to as we see with like Arthur and his experience in these schools, um, as well as then very recently mass graves from the, these schools have been found. I'm trying to think about what are the ethics or responsibilities of taking inspiration from something dark and making something light. A reason that these schools existed was to basically stamp out First Nation culture in Canada. It was a place to basically whiteify these kids and rehome them into proper white Canadian families, which I, I think is an important contrast to what is happening here. Here, they are orphans. They aren't being stolen from parents. Or maybe they are. We don't really know. Right, right, right. A lot of times we don't know who their parents are. In yeah. The, I mean, or in the case of like Lucy, we know it's the devil, but we don't know who the mother is. Yeah. And this is called out to be like, these aren't orphanages. This isn't for adoption. Mm-hmm. And because of the way that surveillance culture works in these houses, it is, you know, forcing them into boxes, like basically forcing them into white boxes in, a, in that same way. So it is, it is calling attention to the evilness of that trying to wipe out a culture, not even wiping it out, this is not letting a culture flourish that mm-hmm. could flourish and making it so that that identity can't be forged in any kind of meaningful way before it can even have a chance to, to come together. And I think there's an interesting contrast for me in an element of what it means to be in control. Because I do think that a lot of what Arthur is doing is helping these students be in control, but in control of their abilities in a positive way where they mm-hmm. use them versus in control and not using them where the first scene is Linus coming into a school and there's a girl, Daisy, who is using her powers and the headmistress is like, no, 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 she like never uses her powers. Maybe like once in a blue moon. Okay, maybe once or twice a month. Yeah. <laughs> and like clearly Daisy wants to be using it more and she's completely out of control with it because she doesn't practice it. Right. Because it's being pushed out of her. Right. Versus Fee, who through mentorship and tutelage of Arthur as well as obviously Zoe, another sprite, She's able to really control her powers yeah. and grow beautiful forests around her. Yeah. Like we all have to control our powers yeah. or and control some of the things that make us special, but we can make that for good versus completely like trying to push them, push them down until we break. Right. What's really great is all six of the students really have separate beautiful gifts that really balance each other out and bring out joy and wonderfulness in each other like there's a wyvern who just like collects buttons and just like keeps them under the couch and i think that's adorable yeah or if their stories are all these magical beings if all of their stories are used to sort of explore different elements of oppressed or, or minority communities and the stories that we tell about them i was struggling with the wyvern because the wyvern doesn't really talk or has a language that, that nobody really understands, so maybe that's actually part of it now that I'm saying it out loud, and collects buttons, but like, what is it from there? And I found the most meaningful parts of the Wyvern story to be near the end when they talk about how Theo thinks that the buttons and the you know all of those little things it collects, thinks that those things are magical or interesting simply because they exist. And so there doesn't need to be anything super remarkable about them. There's this just enjoying of existence as it is and just being like marveling at the fact that we can adore something for the fact of its existence without it needing to be 
actually special or rare or anything like that. And Theo might be, in, in part at least, just a, a sort of model for how we can all view the world with more compassion or more like majesty and just find the magic in things. Yeah, and in the metaphor of there's just different hiding spots where like mm-hmm. as items become more and more precious to Theodore the Wyvern, being open with the treasures that you find in the world yeah, and where you find those simple joys. Right. And like Lucy thinks that he's broken all his records, but then Theo takes a piece of that record and puts it in his collection and it becomes this memory of those records and it becomes part of that collection. And it's marvelous because it's part of the collection. It's almost like he's created a museum of the culture that exists at that school. Mm -hmm. And those artifacts don't just represent the thing that they used to be, but they represent the feelings and the values that the people that loved those items inscribed onto them. And so like Lucy once loved that record and now it's broken and it's part of the Wyvern's collection. And so this becomes a record of the meaning that they inscribed on those objects and, and the majesty that they all gave them. And the Wyvern just preserves that. It's almost like a museum curator for them. And I think that that's also oriented in that same thematic direction of inscribed meaning and so on. That's so interesting. I didn't think about this initially, but so many of the children have powers of creation, Mm. right? Like Theo creating this from buttons and records and Fee creating trees from men and obviously Talia's creation of her garden. Yeah. And Talia is great. There's something a little strange about Talia that I have trouble fully processing and that is the fact she's like a quarter of a century old or whatever and there just must be some wisdom that comes with that so you know she's got all this life experience but she still has that you know teenage angst where she's Mm -hmm. digging graves for people and threatening them (laughs) threatening to brain them with her shovel and there's this like uncompromised and just exuberant joy that she has when she's reading, I don't know, Gardens Weekly or whatever the magazine is. <laughs> Whichever one is, like, not out of date yeah, yeah. or whatever. Right. right, and she's, like, just a little bit behind where the adults who are, you know, serious about the study of these things are, and she's, you know, trying to catch up really fast, and there is something, like, really adolescent and interesting about that. So she inhabits all of those, like, 13, 14-year-old qualities, but... She's 250 years old. Yeah. And I think that there are two things that made me think that that didn't seem too crazy to me. One is like social isolation is a bitch. You don't know how to, like, you don't know what cool shovels there are if you're not a part of society. And I do think so much of what we consider growing up is becoming a part of society um, and finding your role outside of the home. And so I think that part to me was really exciting and that joining the town she was going to start to grow up a little bit and find mentors and friends and things like that and the second is just like also like just thinking about humans like brain chemistry and the way that your brain works like teenagers are hella smart but their hormones are a freaking mess mm-hmm. and if you just pump people through with hormones for a hundred years i don't know where you would get <laughs> You get you get a you get, you get a gnome threatening to brain people with their shovel every yeah. other page. <laughs> so I assume it just takes a little bit longer for their brains to mature and for them to get a prefrontal cortex or something. Yeah, no, I, I like the idea of thinking about this in terms of social isolation because oftentimes these, uh, you know, we can read that allegory of communities that are isolated from mainstream culture and the anxiety and anger that like festers in that. But ultimately, Talia's clearly got a heart of gold and is fiercely loyal. Mm-hmm. And there is there is one more thing 
about Linus that I, I think was interesting. And that is, he never gets promoted. And I think this is a really interesting part of his, you know, status quo and story arc is that in the early parts of the book, we're told that he's had this job for like 17 years and he goes around and he does reviews of these orphanages and he is, has a reputation for being objective and so on. And there's all these levels of management that he is not a part of. Like he's never graduated to middle management or upper management or anything like that, even though people who've been around for as long as he has have. And I think part of this is that he genuinely likes the connection to the real world. Like he wants to do well by these kids. He's uncompromising in that. I don't think he aspires to be more than that. He feels as though the work he's doing is important. And so he stays there. And one of the interesting, like the foil character for him, I think is the, the handsome man in the extremely upper management position, because that is the person that they originally sent out to Arthur Parnassus's island. And that guy ended up getting promoted until he's in extremely upper management and sort of sold that school out or sold that orphanage out for that promotion. And Linus refuses to do that. And uh, it's interesting when the, the island sprite first asks him, um, do you do you like your job? And Linus says, I'm good at it. And she says, that's not the question. And he says, it's the same thing. I kind of see his arc in the same way that I see the arc of Ebenezer Scrooge in The Christmas Carol, where in the, when they go back to the Christmas past, you see that Ebenezer Scrooge, when he was youthful, did care for people and took responsibility for them and wasn't this like capitalist, mean boss, curmudgeon, and so at the end of A Christmas Carol, Ebenezer Scrooge is actually, like, it isn't this reversal, and he hasn't, like, denied himself. He has returned to himself. He, like, has returned to his younger version. And I feel like this is true also of Linus, that there is something deep inside him that wants to take care of these kids. And because the system and bureaucracy that he's a part of has denied him this identity fully, and has like repurposed him as exclusively a bureaucrat. The ending when he decides he's going to stay and allow people to take responsibility for his feelings and he takes responsibility mm -hmm. for their feelings, it's like a return to his authentic self, his like pre-bureaucratified self. I love what you just said. And there's two parts that I like want to follow up on. The first being Linus staying in his job as a caseworker and why that's important to him. And I feel like there's something about power mm -hmm. and where do you choose to exert power or where have you been allowed power? Yeah. And it reminds me of a lot of conversations that I've had with friends where it's like, do you want to have power in helping out a small community around you or make some sacrifices to go power like hungry a little bit to mm -hmm. get to the top so you can potentially make even bigger sweeping changes. Right. And to get to the top takes sacrifices of things that you would not want to do and you often will not get to see and actually impact individuals in the day-to-day -day and truly transform their lives. Yeah. And so I think already at the top, like Linus, through staying in the career he was as a caseworker for so long and then of course choosing to leave it, um, is choosing for to keep it hands-on. And mm -hmm. that work is often the hardest. And I think it says something that, you know, Charles decided to move on and move up. Um, and it didn't seem to be in order to better advocate. Right, it was selfish. And I think, like, that's part of the bureaucratification of people mm -hmm. is that they 
yeah, that they, they do it in, for selfish reasons, whereas he has stayed in a job where he can actually make meaningful change and, like, is connected to actual work and actual people at the expense of his own ego mm-hmm. and his own self. Yeah, and, and the grassroots change can work, that he can start a mm-hmm. movement from the bottom. Right. Um, and at the end, they're like, oh, now there are protests and counter-protests. And right, right. They're going to adopt a Yeti child. Right. Yeah, it's interesting. He sort of has to need to operate outside of the system in order to make real change. And that's mm-hmm. one of the things that this book offers as a, you know, an, an analysis of the way power works. Is that he needs to now do these subversive things like steal reports and send them in. Yeah. And then my other um, question about what you're saying is, what's the deal with Charles <laughs> from Extremely Upper Management? Like, he and Arthur, like, totally dated, right? Yeah, yeah. That's the way it seems. Yeah. And then uh, he sacrificed that chance at love and being happy on the island for his own ego and his own advancement within this system of bureaucracy and surveillance culture and yeah just sacrifice that straight up yeah and i feel like what i what i thought was going to happen is because obviously they approve linus's recommendation to not close Mm -hmm. um the orphanage and i thought this was supposed to be like a change of heart for charles like we would i mean maybe that's a little too like tying of a bow too cute but i wanted to see an end to that character arc um, which we don't really get all we get is that he and the rest of extremely upper management get sacked yeah and so i'm like after that does he like have remorse? Is he going to like try to like take Linus down? Is he going to try to fight for Arthur's heart back? Like, <laughs> what's going to happen here? Also, like Arthur needs to hang out with more people. He's yeah. always falling in love with the caseworkers right. who visit him. <laughs> Which again, he's had a terrible childhood, and that makes sense that he's attaching himself to people who right are coming to him. Yeah, yeah. So if I read that Charles story arc sympathetically and, and trust the author here, that might be just the condemnation of that perspective on power and that like what happens when you allow the corporation or the the system to reify you into whatever it wants you end up losing your identity not just in that like meaningful way like he misses his chance of love with Arthur but he also loses his identity that he constructed for himself within that system as being a part of extremely upper management he loses both in the end and then just like goes off into nothingness and like is no longer a person that needs talking about mm-hmm. so i i, I want to like believe that is true additionally uh one of the interesting things here is what it means to be outside of the system and you know linus makes a decision to operate outside of the system in the end Charles is, you know, essentially deleted from the system. And that makes me think of Zoe, who is the island sprite who has not registered and exists outside of the system. And so this whole bureaucracy and surveillance and power that uses, you know, these normalizing rules and regulations to guide society in a certain direction that is essentially the maintaining of a status quo power structure she exists outside of it and that allows her to be a meaningful mentor to those kids and allows her to be protective of them and so i think she's an interesting character did you have thoughts on zoe yeah well i i think also the fact that the island is hers yes she's the one letting them be there and it's her own way of even if like just that she has power in this situation Mm -hmm. Um, and she's using her power to uplift people that are like herself Mm -hmm. and do it a little bit like in the system, but outside of the system, which is kind of what Linus is doing too. Yeah. And it's also pretty cool that like we have like the island and then we also have the town and we both have women in charge in both situations, which I'm always a fan of. Yeah. 
And the town, obviously, is an allegory for the results of the fear-mongering that the bureaucracy and this, like, corporate structure of surveying kids of magical abilities, like, the town is a result of that. Um, and it tries paying them off to not talk about it, but the, the fear that exists within it of just the potential for harm without there ever actually being harm and without there ever being a real thing to talk about, the unknown still stresses them out. And obviously this is something that's relevant today. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I think how important it is to speak up and that it's never too late to speak up. Like the mayor talks about how it's a long time coming mm-hmm. and she had a responsibility to speak up before she did. Yeah, But obviously no matter what, if you have some power and you use it wisely, that can make a difference, even if it's a little bit later than you ideally should have. Also, just like the whole record store, her fluffle with Lucy. Yeah. Like, obviously some of this, again, is like this very, I wouldn't say like whitewashing, but just like happy washing of everything that happens that is bad in here is never too bad. There's always a good person to be found, which doesn't always happen in real life. But the more we give people experiences with people who don't look like them, who don't think like them, the more that people who are more accepting speak up and normalize it, the easier it is for us to move towards that better future. Yeah, there's something you said in there that I really, that sparked a thought in me about the power that she has and the way that she uses her power, you know, in in contrast to the way that the the system uses power to isolate these kids and to sort of remove their culture from them. There's a line in Foucault about how power exists in everything. Like anytime there's human interaction, power is going to express itself in, in lots of different ways. And he says something in, in one of his lectures or one of his books that is power is an integral part. You know, it's not just a bad thing. It's an integral part of love and pedagogy. And so this idea that you can use power in these interesting ways, like the mayor does, that it doesn't need to be something that isolates people and tries to reify them in different contexts or delete their culture, that power is going to be expressed, like it's going to exist, it's going to operate through people, and that it's it's like the way that you use it. And so I think that the mayor tries to use it, use her power in a mentorship role, like kind of in the same way that Zoe uses hers. Or there is power, but if you think about that power in terms of mentorship and pedagogy, it's very different than using it and thinking about it in terms of control or reification. Mm. Okay, have we done it? Have we done this one? Uh, We may have, but I just, I'm a little bit regretful that the next time we talk, I won't be here in Milan with you. I know. I'll be just eating delicious burritos without you. I mean, we still got one more dinner together. That's true. That's true. And we're going to potentially have four more books together is what I hear. Yeah. So um, we've been discussing what our next book is going to be. And we have a listener suggestion for a Maureen Johnson novel. And I have heard Maureen Johnson's name a lot. I follow her on Twitter and have for like four years. But I've never actually read one of her books. And so we were recommended Truly Devious. And when I looked it up, I found out that the fourth book in the Truly Devious series recently came out. So I think, and correct me if I'm wrong, but we're going to try to read all four of them for the next podcast. And we're going to do it. It's totally going to happen. And we will do it. And then we will still meet up in a month to record. We, we, we've got this. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I think that because this is such a big project that we have set ourselves, you know, reading four books... This time, I will not say, see you next week. I will actually say, 
See you next month. Thank you, James. See you next <laughs> month. Literary Connections is hosted by me, Melissa Hansen. And me, James Earl. And we're produced by the one and only Kimberly Johnson. I also want to give a shout out to our listener who suggested Cerulean C for this month's episode, a digital artist whose Instagram handle is SWSD underscore N. Go check it out. You can follow us on Twitter at lit underscore connections. Join us next month when we'll be reading all four of the truly devious books by Maureen Johnson. We're doing it. You're doing it. It's going to be a blast. (laughs) See you next month. They're just like, Arthur, meet more people. Sign up for Tinder.